Halloween. It's spooky out there. Has anyone seen some of these crazy, scary decorations? There's this one down on uh, Ferndale, uh, you know, Hillsdale, Ferndale, I think that's it. It's, forgive me if it's wrong, but you know, it goes out to Alamo and you look in the, the house and it's like full inside. It's like these mannequins with like a knife and a murder mask and all this stuff. And that's in their house. I get spooked by the refrigerator when I get up at night, let alone that. Can you imagine? Whew, no, thank you. It's Halloween and it is scary out there. It's spooky out there. There are things that go bump in the night, right? Yeah. Now, I find this kind of funny in a way. Last week, I preached on and against uh, Satan. If you were here, you remember I preached against the enemy in this series we're doing called Supernatural. And uh, leading up to that message, no one really batted an eye. They're like, okay, yep, go get him, right? Uh, Or so it seemed. But this week, what I'm preaching about when I tell people what I'm preaching about, uh, they kind of freak out. They kind of like, oh, they get the, the heebie-jeebies. You know what I'm saying? Heebie-jeebies. Uh, that's because I'm talking about giving today. <laughs> I'm kidding. I'm not. But you know, you're like, oh, no, you felt it for a second, didn't you? You felt it. Maybe there's some... Okay. Uh, today, preaching about demons. Why don't you go, oh demons. Scary, nasty things. Now, I just preached on the enemy, right? The enemy, Satan. But here's the good news. We have nothing to fear. Just like last week, this week, we have nothing to fear. So to frame our discussion on demons, we're going to spend time in Mark chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. Uh, If you have your Bible, I'd love for you to turn there. Uh, It will be on the screen, but we're going to rest in that for most of our message today. Now, the amazing thing where you find this in the gospel of Mark is this is the third time already by the fifth chapter uh, where Jesus deals with demons. He first did in the 25th chapter of the first, or excuse me, 25th verse of the first chapter, and then again in chapter 3, and now here we are in Mark 5. The same story is also accounted for in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, so that would be fun for you for some homework to go home and compare the two and see what helps illuminate of this most incredible account. We're going to first read the passage in its entirety, and then we're going to kind of go back through it a couple times in different ways. So here now, the true word of the Lord. So the disciples arrived at the other side of the lake with Jesus in the region of Gerasenes, where Jesus climbed out of the boat. And when he climbed out of the boat, a man possessed by an evil spirit came out of the tombs to meet him. This man lived in the burial caves, and he could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist, and he smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. When Jesus was still some distance away, the man saw him. 
He ran to meet him. He bowed low before him. And with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. For Jesus had already said to the Spirit, Come out of that man, you evil spirit. So then Jesus demanded, What is your name? And he replied, My name is Legion, because there are many of us inside this man. Then the evil spirits begged him again and again not to send them to some distant place. Now there happened to be a large herd of pigs feeding on the hillside nearby. Send us into those pigs, the spirits begged. Let us enter them. So Jesus gave them permission. The evil spirits came out of the man. They entered the pigs and the entire herd of about 2,000 pigs plunged down the steep hillside and into the lake and drowned in the water. Then the herdsmen, they fled to the nearby town and the surrounding countryside, spreading the news as they ran. So people rushed out to see what had happened. And a crowd soon gathered around Jesus. And they saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there, fully clothed and perfectly sane. And they were all afraid. Then those who had seen what happened told the others about the demon-possessed man. Oh, and the pigs. And the crowd began pleading with Jesus to go away and leave them alone. What? And Jesus was getting into the boat. The man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. But Jesus said, no, no, go home to your family. Tell them everything the Lord has done for you and how merciful he has been. So the man started off to visit the ten towns of that region, began to proclaim the great things Jesus had done for him, and everyone was amazed at what he told him. Praise be to God for his true word. Isn't that just the most dramatic and amazing account? Yeah. Now, as we discussed last week, Satan, when he rebelled, he did not rebel alone. There was a host of angels that followed him and as a result fell with him. Fallen angels. These fallen angels are what we now know as demons. I think uh, that Robert Leitner puts it really well. So here's, here's a quote he has to help frame this discussion. Satan, as we noted earlier, he's not the all-knowing or all-powerful and cannot be everywhere at the same time. These characteristics are true only of God. Satan, however, has a host of demons who carry out all his evil desires. They're just as wicked as he is. They too are constantly opposing God and believers, seeking to keep us from everything holy and good. These demons have taken up residence in certain people at times in the past, and they probably still do so in the present. 
They afflict the saints in every way possible, seeking to lure them away from God and his word. Does that give you a decent overview on demons? They do, but then we read accounts such as these. It's actually pretty amazing. Uh, In the New Testament, there's teachings about demons in every single one of the books of the New Testament, except one. The author of Hebrews chose not to talk about demons. He had enough to deal with, okay? But uh, every other book of the New Testament has teachings about demons. And so here's one in Mark 5. And consider for a moment the context of when we get this account with, these, with this legion of demons. Just before this, Jesus calms the storm. You know the account. The disciples are in the boat. Jesus is sleeping. A massive storm uh, occurs, and, and they're being blown every which way. And so they wake up Jesus, and he calms the winds and the waves. And at the power to command the winds and the waves that obey him, the disciples are very afraid. Then just after this, Jesus heals a woman who had an issue with bleeding for 12 years, and he heals her. He does so on his way to Jairus' daughter, who had sick, who, had, who was sick, and in that time died. But then what does Jesus do but raise her back to life? Four incredible encounters with Jesus, and each one reveals Jesus' authority. His authority over nature in the storm. His authority over demons in this account. His authority over disease and even death. So after this incredible account of Jesus calming the seas, as they believe, that is the disciples, that they're finally stepping out to safety on shore, a very frightening demon-possessed man comes out of the tombs to meet them. That is some welcoming party you don't want, right? Whew. This is such a troubling and vivid description of this poor tormented man. Look again. This man, he lived in the burial caves. Other translations render it tombs. And he could no longer be restrained, even with a chain. Whenever he was put into chains and shackles, as he often was, he snapped the chains from his wrist. He smashed the shackles. No one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night, day and night, he wandered among the burial caves and in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. That description of this man is far more fitting to that of a terrible animal than that of an image bearer of Christ. So this man, he comes out of his home of tombs, and he sees Jesus and the disciples, and upon seeing them, he runs to them. Let's pause a moment. Place yourselves in the disciple sandals, all right? They just went through, well, before even the storm, Jesus was teaching in parables, and they were getting all sorts of confused, okay? So they're confused. Jesus helps clarify some things for them, but then they get into this boat, and they have this terrifying storm. Terrifying storm. And, and, and the, the, the text shows us that they're even more afraid at the fact that Jesus commands the winds and the seas, and they obey him. Okay, so they are truly terrified from a number of things. 
Their minds are all messed up. Not only that, they're physically exhausted because it's hard enough to row a boat and to guide a boat on calm waters, let alone in a storm. And the text says they set out on the lake at evening, and we have no idea how long they were rowing and fighting the elements. So they finally, finally make it to shore. They get across the lake. They're on dry land. And as soon as Jesus climbs out of the boat, the man comes out of the tombs to meet them, runs to them. And then what happens? The man bows down low before Jesus. Now, is he worshiping Jesus? Probably not. Probably not. Text would indicate it's not an act of worship necessarily, more of just an acknowledgement of Jesus' authority is far greater than that of the demons that reside in the man. And then with a shriek, he screamed, Why are you interfering with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In the name of God, I beg you, don't torture me. And from the demon's mouth, the man's mouth, the demon speaking through him, we learn a lot about these fallen angels. First, the ones who are interfering fear being interfered with. The ones who torture and torment fear being tortured and tormented. And what else? They fully acknowledge and know who Jesus is. Without an introduction, the demons know him to be Jesus. And not just Jesus, they know he is indeed the Son of God. It's not just that. They also acknowledge that God is the Most High God. Though these fallen angels follow Satan, who in his attempt long to be like God, these fallen angels recognize that none but God is most high. They, along with Satan, they were cast out. They were cast down. And there is an immense gap between them and the most high God. And then what do they do? They acknowledge that Jesus has full authority and power over them. For in their pleading, did you notice, they call on not Satan's power, not their own power. They call on the name of God. Can you believe the audacity, the fallen angel, to call on the name of God to beg Jesus not to torture them? So what do we know about these evil minions of the enemy? That in the presence and power of Jesus, they cower. That God is sovereign over all. He has all power. He has the wisdom, all authority over all things, including the enemy and his demons. Just as we said last week, though we dare not take the enemy's forces lightly, we need not be afraid, for they have no footing in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. Picking up from verse 9, then Jesus demanded, he demanded, what is your name? And he replied, gives me shivers. My name is Legion, for we are many, or because there are many of us inside this man. Then, once again, the evil spirits begged him, again? 
and again not to send them into some distant place. Now, in the Luke account, that distant place they are referring to is the abyss, the gloomy depths, hell, as it is expressed in Second Peter 2, where God had already sent and sentenced certain angels to be already chained in that dark place and promised the rest will go there too. A legion now, that name is revealing. It is the largest unit of the Roman army, which would consist somewhere between 3,000 and 6,000 soldiers. So what we learn here, we learn quite a bit more from this. What we learn here is that demons are personal, okay? They, Jesus asks them for their name. Jesus would not have asked if the, de- the demons this question if they were not personal beings. But remember, a demon is simply a fallen angel, which is a personal spiritual being. We also learn that, yes, demons can take up residence in some people. And that, yes, more than one can occupy that space. Now, I want to take an important quick aside to fast forward a couple thousand years and some change to now. Because there's a question a lot of us ask when we wrestle and deal with demons. And that question is, do demons still exist? Well, yes, yes, they do. We have every indication that yes, they do, for sure. Until Jesus comes again in the promised final victory, they are actively at work to bring this world down. But what, what about demon possession? Can people still be possessed by demons? Is that still happening? We, we, we know that is one, just simply a tool of the enemy forces, but does it still happen? And even more so, us as Christians— Those who surrender their lives to Christ, can a Christian become demon-possessed? Do you want the answers or do you want cliffhangers? Yeah. I went to someone much wiser than me to help us articulate this. Pastor R.C. Sproul says this. In the Bible, we see demons possessing people and oppressing people, causing bodily harm, property damage, all kinds of things. The Christian is always faced with this question. Can I be demon-possessed? I don't believe so. I I believe that people, yes, can be demon-possessed, but I don't think this is possible for a Christian because God the Holy Spirit resides in the regenerative person, and the Scripture tells us where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. So no demon can hold us hostage to the power of Satan. Demons can oppress us, they can harass us, they can tempt us, attack us, and so on. But thanks be to God, he who is in us is greater than he who is in the world. What a comfort for those that call Jesus their Lord and Savior. What a comfort that we can be assured that once the Son sets us free, we are free indeed. But let us return our eyes to this poor man who lays host to legion. The demons, knowing who Jesus is and what he can do, they now beg him not to send them into the abyss as is promised for them at some future time. See, they knew the curse of Satan. 
They know what we know from Scripture, that Jesus will come in final victory to send all the fallen angels, as well as Satan, to that gloomy depths once and for all. And they feared that was this time, but it was not yet that time. But they begged him. Did you see how many times they begged him? See how many times? Repetition in the Bible is of importance. It shows something very strong is happening, and they very strongly were begging Jesus. And the text goes on, and it reveals there's this large herd of pigs. And so the demons, it says again, they beg him, don't send us into the pigs, or don't send us into the gloomy depths, send us into the pigs. Send us there. We know you're not going to let us reside in this man any longer. Send us into those pigs, away from the man. Because they knew in the presence and power of Jesus, they could not reside in that man. So Jesus, having all authority in heaven and on earth, grants this legion permission. And they leave the man. They enter the pigs into a herd of about 2,000 pigs that plunge down a steep hillside and into a lake where they drown. I went to Gall Meadow Farms yesterday. Had a lovely time. They have pig racing there. One pig was squealing for about 10 seconds, and it about drove me crazy. Imagine, imagine this sight. 2,000 pigs just going about their pig business. And Legion enters them. Can you imagine the pure chaos of all the squealing, all the movement, all the running, all the freaking out that happened in this by these demons? It was a frenetic fury of action happening, and then they plunge off the cliff into the waters. The outward chaos of the pigs gives us just the slightest glimpse of the inward chaos that that image bearer of Christ was feeling and experiencing. See, ever since God created humans, the evil spirits have been wanting to bring about death and destruction. That's what they do. That's what they do. And now, in the pigs, these demons had a chance. And we vividly see on display what is going on. Because it seems that Jesus allowed these demons to destroy the pigs, which we're going to deal with in a second. But I wonder if in part, it's to give us eyes to see what demons are up to when they assault people. They are out to steal. They're out to kill. They're out to destroy. And that's what they did. So this account wraps up with the herdsmen running, tell everyone about what had happened. And, and you'll see here a crowd soon gathered around Jesus. They saw the man who had been possessed by the legion of demons. He was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane, and they were all afraid. Echoes of the disciples being afraid at the power and authority of Jesus. They were afraid. Isn't that amazing? First, don't glance over this man too long. Praise God. Praise God. He was so tormented. And what a profound testimony that he was sitting there fully clothed, perfectly sane. Praise God. But then these people, the crowds were afraid at seeing this man back as he should be. You see, they believed this impossible. 
Remember what they said about it. They, they, they had known this man. They had known this man. He, they, they repeatedly had tried to chain him, probably out of an act of mercy, out of an act of protection, out of an act of who knows what. They had tried to chain him. Notice they never took away his life, right? God had other plans in store for this man. They likely had to try and fall asleep as they could hear him screeching and wailing all night long from the tombs. I talk about being afraid of some Halloween decorations. Imagine that. Imagine that. And here he was, perfectly sane, a danger to no one. But Jesus did the impossible, and now the people are afraid. They're not just afraid. Their fear turns to anger. I'm showing restraint because there's a Star Wars quote right there. Yoda, you know it, you know it. Their fear turns to anger and they get mad at Jesus. You see, they learned about the pigs. They learned about the pigs. And just as the demons begged Jesus, now the crowds beg Jesus to go away and leave them alone. See that parallel? Let's talk about the pigs. There's a herd of pigs there, and it says there's herdsmen. So these are not just wild pigs. These are people's pigs, all right? Now, this also reveals that they're in Gentile territory. See, a lot of the Gospels talk about Jesus, you know, coming uh, and and working with with Jewish folk, but he also knows he came for the whole world, right? He came not just for the Jew, but the Gentile as well. And he's in Gentile territory here because uh, Jews would have nothing to do with pigs. They're unclean animals. They wouldn't eat them, they wouldn't raise them, they wouldn't touch them, all of that. It had nothing to do with them. One of these, uh, this is one of those marked moments that revealed Jesus' ministry is global. He came for all. But not just that about these pigs. 2,000 pigs represents an enormous livelihood. And their loss would be considered an economic catastrophe. The good done to the demoniac results in great misfortune for the swineherds. Now, ironically, think about this. Both Jesus and the gospel writer Mark pass over the obvious plight of the swineherds without comment. They don't mention it. As it stands, the story, this account, directs undivided attention to the rescue of one man from a tragic and torturous fate. And this is perhaps the essential moral of this miracle, surpassing even the dilemma of the loss of pigs. In the eyes of Jesus, the rescue and restoration of one person is more important than vast capital assets. Compared to the redemption of a human being, the loss of the swineherds, considerable though it is, does not rate mentioning. Jesus' actions also show the importance of human beings relative to animals. Now, he loves his creation, praise God. But consider the birds of the field. Do they even worry? No, I provide for them. They're fine. You neither need to worry. He cares about all creation, but humans and animals, there's a big difference in the eyes of God. 2,000 pigs dead for one person to live. In our math, that is not an even trade. And that is exactly the point. It's exactly the point. Being made in God's image, we are more important to the Lord than any animal. For our creator, one lost person saved is worth the death of many animals. 
And in so doing, consider again the people. He forces a choice on these people. They beg Jesus to leave. But what's the choice he presents them? It's the choice between prosperity or love, money or Jesus, human resources or divine power, the power and grace of Jesus to give life and hope, or the love of possession and wealth from the pigs. What do they do? They beg Jesus to leave. They beg the hope bringer, the life giver to leave. They could not see what was offered. They could only see what he took away. Does that word resonate with you? They couldn't see what he offered. They could only see what they took away. But what is a pig or 2,000 in the presence of true hope and life? It is nothing. Jesus came to restore life and hope. But yes, he also took away the pigs. For all of us to consider, do we love our possessions? Well, sure. We got some nice stuff, right? Yeah. Do we love our possessions? But the this is where the crux of it is. Do we love our possessions? Do we love our well-being? Do we love our comfort, our wealth, more and above our love and trust of God? The pigs, being the livelihood of some in the community, they're now gone. Their wealth, gone. But at the same time, Jesus saved a man. And that man was lost. He's now found. He is saved. He is in his right mind. And as Jesus goes to leave, we have one final instance of begging in this passage. Did you catch that? The man who's in his right mind now begs, Jesus, let me come with you. I want to follow you. The language he uses there, it's the same language. He longs to be a disciple of Jesus. The disciple as in, I'm always with him type of disciple. But Jesus tells him, no, no. While that would be great, I have something greater in store for you. Stay here and tell everyone everything the Lord has done and of his great mercy. And that is exactly what he did. He tells everyone in the entire region, and the text tells us that, it says, everyone was amazed at what he told them. Praise be to God. The people banished Jesus out of their town, but their banishment of Jesus does not rid them of Jesus, for Jesus is present in the message of the gospel proclaimed by this man. Jesus is present in the gospel proclaimed by you and me. And in the gospel of Mark, the healed demoniac becomes the first missionary preacher sent out by Jesus. Before this, Jesus would say in the gospel of Mark, tell no one of who I am. Tell no one what I've done. And here he gives free, tell them everything the Lord has done. How beautiful. So what's our takeaway, our final takeaways? That Jesus is the Son of God. That Jesus is triumphant over demons. That Jesus liberates the captive and gives hope to the hopeless. And Jesus demands a choice. Love him and your salvation or love your pigs? Your wealth, your prosperity, your pigs. 
What's your choice? I think we know what it is, but how does our life reflect what we already believe? And as we journey forth, contending to live out that choice, we need not be afraid. Yeah, things go bump in the night. But we need not be afraid, for as Jesus tells us, the battle does not belong to us. We don't fight on our own power, but we fight fully on his authority, his power. It's his strength. It is his battle. And he fights constantly on our behalf. So we will take up our sword, God's word, and we will submit to his spirit. And we will step forward in Jesus' name. And when we do so, the darkness must retreat for Satan and his fallen angels cannot stand in the presence and the power of Jesus Christ. The victory is secure. Our Savior reigns supreme over it all. And we as his people will trust in him. We will believe in him. We will choose him over our pigs. We will love him, for he loves you. And in him and him alone do we have hope. Do we have peace? Do we have his love? Do we have his light? Praise be to him who reigns on high. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. God Almighty, you are so good. You are so good. You saved that man from a legion of demons, and we know that is the smallest blip of what you have done. God, in fact, each person here has a testimony of how you have saved us, big or small ways. And so we give you thanks, Lord. We give you thanks for accomplishing your good purposes. We give you thanks for the, the power of Jesus Christ that resides within all who believe. We give you thanks that this battle is not ours to fight alone, but it belongs fully and completely to you. Lord God, we posture ourselves in this moment, having received your word, to say, have your way with us here and now. You have called us out to be your hands and feet, and you have a mission field for us, God. So give us eyes to see where you're sending us, the courage to follow, the faith to rest on your word, and trust that you will accomplish your purposes. We know this is possible. We just read about how it is possible. And so we long to believe and proclaim, not just with our words, but with our life, that it is possible. You free the captives. You rescue those that are captive. You have rescued us. So we believe that whatever comes our way in this broken and hurting world, your love, your light, your hope, your salvation reigns over and above it all. So we give you this battle here and now, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.